Welcome to the From Little Things podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Kenizaro, and together on this show, we'll speak with Aussie small business owners, founders, and entrepreneurs to share their stories and learn from those who have been on the journey from little things and beyond, so we can make it easier for you to succeed in business and life. From Little Things is brought to you by Papiera, the all-in-one solution that makes business easy for Aussie sole traders, company directors, and small business owners. You can learn more and get started for free at papera.com. Today, we have Steve Grace on the show. Steve, you're a seasoned entrepreneur, and uh, <laughs> I never like to introduce people myself because I think you can do a far better job yourself. But um, for everyone's benefit, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I love the word seasoned. I think it's a, it's a nice replacement for slightly older. <laughs> <laughs> I like to think of it more along the lines of you've done many things successfully. And you've learned many things along the way. Because I'm older. But yeah, let's let's just, <laughs> let's go. you know why I say that? I just hit 50. So I'm just trying to deal with that. So, Congratulations. Uh, yeah, yeah, well, I guess there was a couple of moments in my 20s where I wasn't sure, let's be honest. But um, so yeah, my name is Steve Grace. Um, I think my main role and what I'm known for right now is um, founder and CEO of The Nudge Group. Um, or Balance the Grind. Balance the Grind is also the other business that's probably running at the same sort of level. They're both, they're both are sort of quite prominent out there in terms of what I do. Um, the Nudge Group is, for all intensive purposes, it's a recruitment business. It's a lot more than that, and we do a lot more than that, and we can talk about that. But it's designed specifically for startups and scale-ups, and we operate globally. We've got an office here in Sydney, one in Singapore, and one in London. Um, and then Balance the Grind in my other main main sort of business now, and they, they're kind of linked. Balance the Grind is an online publication. Um, it's designed to help you live better through daily routines, habits, all those, you know, and how to, how to help you balance your work-life balance in essence. And that's, that's about 60,000 people that read it all over the world. I think the biggest audience for that is in the US currently, interestingly, not by design, just because they seem to like it. Very cool. And I must admit, um, I've been asked by your team a number of times earlier on in the in the journey of building Papera to contribute to balance uh, the grind. And I was always a little bit embarrassed because I felt that I didn't have any balance. <laughs> but that's the point. See, and I, <laughs> that's the point of balance the grind was to let people understand that balance is different for everyone. And there is no such thing as balance. It's integration, right? And, and balance to a 28-year-old to someone who's got young kids, to someone who's got teenagers, to someone who's got kids who've left home, to someone who's retired, is a completely different thing. So there's no right or wrong. And I reckon 80% of the people who our editor asks to interview for Balance the Grind say exactly what you just said. Oh, I don't want to come on because it's embarrassing. It's like, no, no. The whole point is to give other people validation that it's okay not to have what the traditional view of balance is. That's, that's kind of the idea. And from my perspective, it's always been about work-life integration, not work-life balance. And um, and to for further validation, it's also why we have this podcast to show people that what we feel on our journey is actually quite normal. And uh, so I will look back and I will try to contribute if they'll still have me. So uh, it does. Uh, make and that you positive. know what? I, I agree, but we can't call it integrate the grind because it just sounds really cool. <laughs> <laughs> I can see we the get issues. It's a very different audience, I feel, if we called it that. So let's, let's right. not get into yeah. that. So... Um, Keen to understand, I, I did a little bit of research before this and um, you know, saw your early career, you started off in recruitment, but um, just for it the did. benefit of all the listeners, uh, can you take us through maybe where it all started for you and kind of uh, your earliest memories of what shaped you to eventually become an entrepreneur? So look, I think it's interesting because we, we obviously had a very quick conversation before and you said you think entrepreneurs are born. 
I don't think necessarily born. I think I was always destined to be one. And, I, and there's a couple of reasons for that. You know, even from the young age of, and I did all the, you know, and I, this is, you want something embarrassing, this is embarrassing. I did all the traditional things from, you know, I used to wash cars, then I used to do people's gardens, and then I went and sold kitchen knives door to door, and then I went and sold fake perfumes around uh, sort of business parks. You know, I did all those things that people seemed my age all did. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't think that, I mean, whether that was part of it or not, I think the main part of it was the influence of my father. And I've talked about this before. My father was a dentist. He was a Harley Street dentist, which is like the epitome of dentistry in the UK because I'm, I'm British. I've been here in Australia now 25 years. But And his grandfather was a Harley Street dentist and his grandfather was a Harley Street dentist. Um, none of me, I never wanted to be a dentist, nor did my brother, nor did my sister. But my dad was one. And he had three kids at private school and mortgage and his own business. And he found out through um, getting pain in his neck and through a scan that his neck bone was a solid bone. I think if you look at most people's neck, their neck and they kind of got segments across it. His was solid. And they said to him in his early 30s, mid-30s roughly, if you carry on being a dentist because you're leaning over, you'll be in a wheelchair by the time you're 40. So as you can imagine, a lot of study goes into being a dentist. You yeah. kind of really don't know how to do anything else. He's left there going, okay, I've reached the epitome of an industry. I now can't do that anymore. I've got a lot of expenses. What do I do? And he went and started all sorts of different businesses. My father is an academic, but he was one of the first people to import rap music into the UK. Bizarre, right? Very cool. Uh, the, the company was called Movin, M-O-V-I-N, apostrophe music. Terrible name. Um, he did, he wrote about five or six books on computer programming when the VIC-20 came out, which was one of the first home computers. He was a financial planner. He basically did so many different things. He started up a business training people in dentistry. He ended up sort of finding his way and became the editor of the British Dental Journal, but which he did for 20 years in the end. But through a period of about 10 to 15 years, I saw him do whatever he needed to do in whatever space and whatever opportunity to basically pay the bills, keep us all at private schools and, you know, in the wonders of middle class. Um, but I saw this man just do what needed to be done. And I think that probably had the greatest influence was seeing someone in a difficult situation go, you know what, I'm not going to let this knock me down. I'm going to take control and I'm just going to do it. And I think that's probably yeah. why I ended up always wanting to have my own business. Thanks for sharing that. So really, um, you know, and, and this goes back to my point around, and um, you know, the reason why I asked the question around what are the early things that shaped you, it's actually quite common to hear either um, someone tried a whole bunch of different ventures while they were growing up, uh, but also had uh, a, one of their parents influence them as well through that journey. So, um, and, and but you still went into a structured role post school. So I didn't, I didn't. Um, I finished school, my, my career how can I put this? I, I'm not an overly strategic person. I'm more of a let's do and see where we go kind of person. So I went to Vegas school. I finished school. I had applied to go to a university to do marine biology purely based on there was a couple of girls who I wanted to go to university with had also applied for that course. I got in. Great. Yeah. I actually didn't want to do it. So I didn't end up going. I didn't end up going. I fooled around in sports for a little while. I'm not going to get into that because then People always ask me about it, and I was just horrific. I tried to play professional sport. I got sponsored. I was the worst performer in the country. I quit. What was the sport? 
I'm not. I don't want to talk about it. Okay. But it right. um, and, I, and look, I really I enjoyed myself. It probably gave me more confidence in myself. I was very quiet and shy before I did that. That sport actually traveling around the world, playing in front of people, really brought out my personality. So there was a lot of good that came out of it. Except that what I also realized is that athletically I am not gifted. Um, I'm gifted enough to just squeeze in, but I'm not gifted enough to make any money. So I then left that and did a whole bunch of sales roles, um, not having a clue what to do, but making quite a bit of money. Um, and then I went and worked in finance because everyone in my school went and worked in finance. It was very easy for me to get a job at NatWest Bank in their um, finance arm, which is a company called Lombard. About eight months in, I suddenly realized I had to take exams every year. This was like my worst nightmare. I was not an academic kind of person. My sister and brother where I was not. So I left. And I essentially wandered into a recruitment firm in Piccadilly Circus and said, what jobs have you got? And they said, hey, do you want to work here? And I was like, sure. So, yeah, not what you call strategic. And But I, I knew that from my sales days, I knew that I enjoyed working with people. I knew that I enjoyed the, the, the sales process, if you like, the craft of it. And so recruitment was an obvious one. It was a sales role and it involved people on both sides. So I kind of, that was how I ended up. And I think most people around that time we went into recruitment, it's different now, but back then they fell into it. It wasn't really something that people used to choose as, as it is so much now. No, and, and then it's, it's really interesting to hear um, because again, everyone's approach is different. What was the catalyst for you then to go out and do your own thing after having various roles? At what stage did you say, I'm gonna stop trying various employment opportunities and I'm gonna start my own thing? Yeah, it's a good question. So I did it for a few years in London, loved living. So I grew up in Surrey, um, which is just outside London. Um, I loved living in London and the excitement of it in my early 20s. And I I parted pretty hard. So I wasn't really thinking about my career. Um, I ended up um, going to work in the city doing investment banking, IT recruitment, because it was the highest paying element. And and I was pretty good at it. Um, it was a pretty brutal lifestyle around the drinking culture, investment banking back then, and, and the drug culture and all that kind of stuff. So it was full on. And as much as I enjoyed it, I didn't feel well. And this is when I was wondering whether I'd make 50. So I made the decision to come to Australia. I'd never been to Australia, um, but I like the heat. I hate the UK weather and I love the heat. I love the sunshine. I love the humidity. So at that time, there weren't many British recruiters here, and I applied for a job. I got offered a job. Um, they flew me over. It was a company called Candle, who still exists now, but they're called Clarius. Um, and there weren't many recruitment companies, to be fair. It was back in 1999. And they flew me over. They, I had a limo pick me up. They put me up in an apartment with a view of the opera house. They found me somewhere to live. This was back in the days when, you know, people used to really relocate you. Now you're lucky to get a flight. <laughs> and I went on to Ibiza. And I figured I'd stay a couple of years and, and then go back. Um, completely fell in love with Sydney, um, the beach culture, the the fact that it wasn't as competitive as London. I was able to make a lot more money. It was just before year 2000. It was a very busy time in IT recruitment. So I really, really sort of embraced it. And I realized that my visa was four years long and that was like, oh, this is not good. So I thought, okay, well, how am I going to stay? And in my head then I was like, well, I can, I can start a company because that way I can get a visa. Now, it didn't work out that way. I ended up meeting my wife now, um, not long after I came here and ended up going down the partner visa route because it was just simpler than the, 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 other, the other way. Um, but the day I got my residency, I left and started my own business. So it was, you know, it was kind of, that was probably the most planning I ever did 24 months ahead. <laughs> um, and <laughs> but, um, and I, but I'm just keen to like go maybe a little 
so you 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 got your visa. I mean, so I mean, if I could simply conclude that um, you wanted to start a business because it was a path to to staying in Australia, but it seems like there's something more behind that. Why? You, so you could stay anyway. Why did you still start a company? What was it about starting a company that uh, versus just continuing to do recruitment, which sounds like you're doing quite well in? I did. I did really well. Um, I, look, it was freedom. I think I'm really not a great corporate player. Um, I'm relatively opinion. No, I'm really opinionated. I struggle to not share my opinions. I probably have a problem with authority. I think it's okay to say that now. I'm fifty. Um, I don't. I just don't. I never really fitted into those companies. I never wanted to do it their way. I, I really hate being told what to do, and I would do things within that company on purpose, the way they didn't want me to do them. So this is not conducive to a successful corporate career. And I was very aware of this. Yeah. I'm a Sagittarian, which is apparently how we are. I don't know. Someone told me this the other day. And Instagram tells me these things all the time. So <laughs> I think, I think obviously, in that respect, I didn't feel, I wasn't happy. I genuinely just wasn't happy in myself. And to me, I believed, God, I was 25, right? I believed I could do it better. Of course you do. You're 25. You believe you can do everything better. And I'd seen my dad do it. So I, you know, I had no doubt that it would work. I literally... I was very lucky for me taking that step, which a lot of people struggle with until they take it. Um, that was not a hard part for me at all. I was ready to do that. I would have done it sooner if I'd had the visa. Um, and I had zero fear and 100% belief completely based off of nothing because I had no business skills or training or whatsoever. But I had 100% belief I was going to succeed. Really, there was just no, there was no doubt at all. Um, so like most young early 20s, mid-20s, man, I was an arrogant idiot, <laughs> which is sometimes helpful. Well, I was about to say, do you think knowing, not knowing what you don't know, that sense of naivety maybe helps? Yes and no. Yeah. I mean, you know, there are many mistakes. To an extent. That I, that <laughs> when I look back on it, in hindsight, it's a wonderful thing. Did it help me do it? And it did it help? Yeah, I think absolutely it did. And I do think... Like a lot of things, confidence accounts for a lot. If you can keep it at confidence and not go into arrogance, then that's a difficult difficult thing to do over time. I, I definitely wasn't arrogant. I was confident. I probably became more arrogant. I think arrogance comes after success sometimes, and I've certainly had that arrogance knocked out of me a couple of times. Um, but without question, having that confidence to just go out and do it, um, you, you do definitely need an element of that, or you need someone that's going to be behind you to, to reassure you, I think. Um, I don't know. I, I've, I've always had that, so it's a hard question for me to answer, but I, it, there's no question it's helped. I've seen a lot of founders who don't have it who've also succeeded, so it's not necessary, but for me, it was that's just how I was. Awesome. And um, so you've made the transition. Uh, you've started your own business. Uh, what was the initial business? Because you've had a couple of businesses now over the, over the so last... So it's Fingerprint. Yep. So Fingerprint... Recruitment, fingerprint consulting, I think it had both names. Um, <laughs> it was interesting. I had a sugar daddy, if you want, in that there was an uh, uh, older gentleman who fronted up some money for me, um, which is not something I'd do again. But anyway, well, that's another subject. I was in a room in George, George Street. Yeah, George Street. I was in the building in George Street, the AAP building. It was a co-working space back in the day when co-working spaces weren't called that. And I had a room with no windows. It was smaller than this meeting room I'm in now. I had a plant that I used to talk to. I used to do push-ups. 
in there. Um, I was on my own. I was cold calling. I couldn't call any of my old clients. I didn't know if it was raining or sunny outside. It was awful. And the first three months before I got a job on, so I sat in that room and cold called, which is a horrible thing for anyone to do now. And as we all know, not overly effective for three months. It was, I have to say, it was dreadful. Um, but I was full of young energy and belief. So looking back on it, it was awful. There were times it was tough, but I used to, if I felt like things were going wrong, I'd just bang out push-ups and do strange things like, or talk to my plant. Um, so if anyone could have put a camera in there, it would have been, probably would have made a good YouTube show. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've certainly had my my times of talking to plants and uh, and um, in small, <laughs> small dark rooms, but... Um, Maybe um, what would be helpful is um, because, as you rightly say, a lot of people really struggle to get started and, and it sounds like you had the confidence to get started. Um, but what was the first sort of point in that journey where you really were like, what, was there ever a point, I should say, where you're like, what have I done or this is hard or harder than I thought? Um, I was lucky. I mean, I, I think market was conditions were good. That company grew. Um, I think where it got really hard was when we went into an exit scenario. Okay, so, so uh, talk talk a little bit about that. So you're exiting Fingerprint Consulting? Yeah, six years in, okay. we got approached. You know, we weren't necessarily looking to exit. Um, we were probably maybe 25, 30 people. It was going really well. Uh, and again, you know, I was full of that. That's probably where I got a little bit too arrogant. And I was probably playing too much table football in the office and, and maybe not working as hard as I had been. But um, you get this false sense of uh, ability, I think, when you have success first time round. And there wasn't a lot of setbacks, really. Once once I got that first job on, it kind of rolled. Yeah. Um, and a lot of that was the market. But And we, we at the time, we, we'd started out just doing basic IT and then digital became a thing. So this was when suddenly digital was a word. And so we were one of the first digital agencies. So we really- so at this broke... stage, are we sort of like mid, early 2000s, uh, 2005 yeah, to Yeah, 2004-ish, yeah. 3-ish, yep. something like that. And we, you know, really took off with that digital side and not no one else was really doing digital. And it was a cool name, Fingerprint. We had a cool logo. It was my thumbprint. So that was definitely cool. Awesome. Um, but then we got approached by a ASX-listed company, which kind of- took my arrogance to another level. And I shouldn't have sold. In hindsight, I wish I'd never sold that business. But at the time, I'm like, well, I'm going to sell. Never going to have to work again. You know, all that kind of stuff. Um, and we went through the sale process, which was really new for me. Lawyers, you know, DD, all that kind of stuff. It was like, oh, my God, multiples understanding. I liked it because I was learning, but I had no idea. My negotiating was terrible because I had no idea. Um, but we ended up getting quite a good deal. The deal got signed. We got paid some money up front. Three months later, the GFC hit. So we went from having 350 live rolls to about six. Yep. So that's great. Right? I'm in an earnout scenario. I've got a great multiple based off my future profit, and I've just lost all my work. I don't have control of the company. They tell me I have to make 70% of the company redundant. One of the worst things I've ever had to do, one, because it wasn't my decision or choice, which I hate, as we've talked about. Yeah. Um, and I was in a two-year, three-year run out, actually. It ended up being two, but it was a three-year run out at the time. And two, because I'd just seen my future of, you know, sitting around um, a swimming pool. and evaporated. Gone. It's just gone, right? And um, it was it was horrible. And I remember going through that process with my co-founder. It was just, it was just awful. Um, Did you get through the period? Did you get through the three years? 
we got through it. We, we went down to about eight people. Um, I just, I never felt so guilty when I was making people redundant. It, yeah. I've, it's actually impacted me more than probably most things in my life that time. Because I was in this high, I'm an amazing founder kind of state, and then this is just like, <laughs> you're gone. Of course, I blame them, not me, because I wasn't the founder anymore. But um, anyway, we can talk about that later. Um, and yeah, we got through it, um, but I, I really hated it. They they um, they they changed our name. So they interesting. They were an IT services company. I won't say who they were. They had a failed recruitment business. They bought our business, and then they changed our name to their name, and changed it to the way that they were running it. So then everybody that I like left because it was a bad model. And I'm sitting there running it, and we're down to three people. It was a disaster. So I actually went into the CEO at the time, um, who ended up becoming quite famous for a, a number of reasons later. But I went into his office and I said, this was two years in, I said, you know, I've got another 12 months earn out. I'm obviously not going to make any money. So it seems a bit pointless. Um, I hate working here. I hate working for you. I hate being told what to do. This is like my worst nightmare. I'm stuck in this big corporate. I have to go to Brisbane because it was a Brisbane headquartered company all the time. I hate going to Brisbane every month. And I said, if, if literally, if you don't let me go, I'm, I'm a very dramatic person. You'll find me hanging in your office one morning. Anyway, he laughed. That wasn't the real reaction I was after. But he, we managed to negotiate over the next few weeks for me to exit. And I exited. And I was just glad to be done of it. But really, really knocked in confidence and unable to work in IT recruitment for 12 months because of the, the, the sale and no idea how to do anything else. Um, and I'd made a bit of money, so I sat around. Yeah, I was going to say, financially at that point, could you afford to kind of spend that year? No, no not for long. Yeah. Not for long. Um, and so I decided to go back to the very same place I'd started my first company and do an international recruitment to recruitment business. So for anyone who doesn't know, the recruitment industry has an industry called recruitment to recruitment, as ridiculous as that is, where you recruit recruiters for recruitment companies because they don't have time to recruit their own recruiters because they're recruiting for everyone else. How many times can you say that word? Um, and it's an awful you, industry. You've mastered it. Only you've mastered it. <laughs> it, was, it was the only thing I was allowed to do. So, And it was international. So I thought, cool, I'll be able to travel. So I started moving recruiters between London, Singapore, Hong Kong, and Australia. Started moving them around. People who wanted to move visas, all that kind of stuff. And I did not enjoy it because the recruiters are terrible people um, like myself. And it it wasn't great, but it went okay. And I got to go to Singapore and Hong Kong a lot. And I opened up in London with a friend of mine who I knew who was in recruitment who'd also lost his job. But I really didn't enjoy it. And after six months, I actually sold my share of the business to him Um and I, I was about three months away then from coming out of my non-compete. So I waited that three months and I didn't really do anything. So, Steve, I've got two questions, I guess, come to mind. Um, I'll ask maybe the one that relates to what you've just shared. What was it about this business that wasn't as fulfilling for you? You mentioned the people part. Was, was there anything else, though? Recruitment to recruitment is a very different industry to IT recruitment or digital yeah. recruitment. It's, it's, not, um, it's just not something I enjoyed. Um, it's a question. No one's ever asked me that question, and I've never thought about it. There is a stigma around the industry, interestingly enough, but, I mean, the people who do it do it really well. For me, I just didn't enjoy it. I, I think I didn't enjoy the people that I was working with, um, yeah. i.e. recruiters. I've never, interestingly enough, I've never liked recruiters. 
hope this doesn't get too watched by recruitment. I don't go to recruitment events. I don't go to any of those. I think things. you're, sa- you're safe, Steve, not, anyway. <laughs> I try not to go to meetups. I try not to speak. I, I'm just, it's not, I don't know. It's just not something that I've loved. So, yeah, I don't, it's a good question. I've never thought about it. You might need to come back to me on a, on a second episode because I've put some thought into that. I, I would love um, to. Um, and the second question I have is um, just going back to the sale process. Were there any options along that process where you could have potentially not uh, gone into an earnout? Could have you just got sold the business with the team? Um, so recruitment companies are made up of two markets, contract recruitment and permanent recruitment. So contract recruitment is ongoing revenue, recurring revenue, as you might call it now, where you've got contractors working um, through your company, you're charging them out at an hourly rate, you're paying them an hourly rate, you're keeping the difference to simplify it. Um, and that you can see forecast. And permanent recruitment, where you get a one-off fee for placing someone. Permanent recruitment could stop tomorrow. So you sell a business in recruitment and walk away, well, all of your clients could stop dealing with that company. So there's no real value in that. So our contractor book in Fingerprint was okay. It was probably 30%, but it wasn't enough to be able to walk away. They wanted to continue us so the clients wouldn't leave and all that kind of stuff. So they were going to essentially get their money back before we left and yep. they would have a chance to build their own relationships. And that's typical of services companies. It's hard to sell a services business as an active founder because you are the business. So if you leave, there's a, there's always a, a fear. So no, I wasn't able to. It was different with, with my next business, which was very contract driven but that one it was it was uh it wasn't it wasn't an option we would have had we would have got very very little money it wouldn't have been worthwhile thanks for sharing that and and i guess um one of the things that came to mind as well while you were sharing that story was um the market conditions that you were in are not too dissimilar to where we are right now um so we've you've gone through a, a it was there was a lot more doom and gloom around the global financial was, crisis I would say it was a lot uh, yeah. yeah but um a lot of founders or business owners right now uh, feel the pain of the market slowdown. There's inflation, there are a whole bunch of other things happening. Um, do you have any advice for if you're running a business right now, how to think about this period of time? Like we we all believe slash hope that the market will recover, uh, but we never know when that's going to be. Uh, how do you get through the downturns? Well, the markets always recover. Yeah. So, I mean, you can you can have that as, as something. So you, I think... When you're dealing with any kind of adversity, it's really how you frame it, right? Um, and then you can, once you've sort of framed it in a positive mindset, you can then create a pathway through. If you don't look at it from a point, if you can't see positive at the end, you're not going to come up with a pathway that's going to work because your mind, you're in the wrong mind. Like everyone talks about mindset, and this is this is absolutely one of those moments. Like if you're in a doom and gloom, and it was really doom and gloom, and the thing about the GFC was no one really believed a bank would go bust, right? So that was probably the biggest the biggest shock to most people. Um, and no one, it was a bit like the pandemic. No one actually knew. You know, those are probably the two events in my life where really you actually didn't know if it was going to work out. I think what we're in now, you know it's going to work out. But you'd have to believe that and you have to understand that and frame it up and and accept it personally accept that that's it and understand that you know some of the business the best businesses in the world have been built during downturns and there's there's enough god data and media about that so read about that understand that look at that and then you can work a way forwards but you have to stop thinking about the, the market being a reason for not having success because it's not you can have success in any market you just have to behave differently and there are plenty of companies that can succeed it doesn't matter what you do i don't believe of this 
Look, there's just no way you can have success in this industry in that might. It's just not true, right? And, you know, financial services was a great example of that. Um, you know, you just can't make money in this market. Well, that's it's just not true. There's always people that do. So try and believe you can be one of those people that, that do because there's a, there's a way. You just got to find it. Yeah. Um, and it will make you a better person as a, as a business leader every, t- every day. Every downturn is, is such a good thing for people. I think um, the part that, uh, and I agree with you, by the way, I think there's opportunity in every market. Um, but the interesting part about your story was that you had made some decisions based on certain market dynamics and those decisions were kind of locked in for the time that you were in that. So you had the earnout. Yeah. Um, there will be people sitting out there today listening that have made similar decisions before things change, uh, particularly if you're a startup founder and you started in 2020, 2021. Um the market has changed, valuations have changed, uh, or if you're just someone that started a, a uh, day-to-day, you know, a more traditional type business, it's not tech-led or or yeah. designed to scale, but your input prices have gone up and you can't charge customers anymore because they're not willing to pay anymore. And you're sitting there and saying, well, everything I started maybe one, two, maybe five years ago, um, it's all different now. Um, sounds like the way you dealt with that was kind of, you wanted a fresh start uh, so you could start again. Based on what you're well, doing. yes and no. If I'd had the opportunity to buy the business back off of the yep. company, I would have. I absolutely would have. Um, they weren't going to do that, unfortunately. So yep. for me, it was grin, bear, get through it, get out the other side so I can go and rebuild in my own way. Yep. But my idea would have been to buy the business back. Awesome. I mean, the wonderful thing about running your own business is you can really take them down to be skinny ass and keep them going. Yep. You know, there's always enough to be able to keep them going. And so you've got to accept that that's what you may have to do. And if that's what you have to do, then, then you do that. And you build the resilience for when the opportunities come back. And you take that time to understand what went wrong and have, how, And you're never going to get it right every time. But try and work out what were the signs, how can I keep an eye on that? If I'd done this, would it have been different? It's a great time for hindsight so that you can do it differently because the worst thing you can do is wait it out and then just do the same thing again because ultimately the next downturn will come. They always do. So unless you're lucky enough to exit before the next downturn, you're going to have to go through the same problems again. So you've really got to take that opportunity to learn. And I think if you do, and most founders have that right mindset, if you do have that and you do take that opportunity to learn, that creates positive thoughts in your head because you feel like you're growing as an individual. And reality is human beings need to feel like they're growing, right? Yeah. You know, as, as everyone talks about, in, in, in life, things are either growing or dying. Um, doesn't matter. It's part of the life cycle. It doesn't matter which part of that life cycle you are. You've just got to decide which part you're in and then make the decision to behave in that way. And there's nothing wrong with going into the dying part of the life cycle if you're on your way out for whatever reason. So there's nothing wrong with being in that as long as you understand why or, or, or what your reasons are and make sure you behave accordingly. Awesome. No, thanks for sharing that. Um, so you've you've come out the other end. You've uh, you've had your then international uh, recruitment to recruitment business <laughs> where you recruit recruiters who are recruiters. For other recruiters, if I've pronounced yep. that correctly. Um, you, you moved on from that business. Maybe we'll go fast forward a little bit to present day, um, yeah. the Nudge Group and uh, Balance the Grind. What inspired those two businesses? And, and maybe if you can share a little bit with us about um, your key learnings through that journey as well. So in between that, I had a business that I bought into and then sold out of. It was a friend's recruitment business called Ashdown that I bought 50% of. We grew that exponentially from like 1 million turnover to 50 million turnover, and then I exited. Right? So that was great. It wasn't a good exit because it was a, I exited 
I sold, I bought half a share and then I sold my half share back to that same person because our relationship broke down. That's a whole episode in itself. And at this stage, it sounds like you're becoming quite savvy with the mechanics of business. So uh, you- I've got, well, I've gotten better. I wouldn't have said yeah. savvy really, you know, I mean, I think a lot of the savviness was the combination of the two of us, not necessarily me. It was a good combo. We were polar opposites in a lot of respects, which ultimately led to our downfall, but also yeah. it was a big, big reason for our success. Um, but once I'd left that, and I, and I did well out of that one, I really did have time. And I sat around trying to work out what to do. And I'm like, I am not doing another recruitment company. There is just no way. And I went through God knows how many idiotic ideas. Um, drove everybody insane because I was constantly ringing my friends, going, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? And a lot of them, I really wanted to be in health. I had, a, I had one idea. This would have been great if it hadn't have been for the pandemic and luckily i didn't do it because it would have killed it but i had this idea there was a lot of chinese tourists coming over i was going to be bringing chinese tourists over i was going to be sending them into the gold coast i was putting them up in the gold coast they were having um plastic surgery or some sort of surgery because there's a hospital next to the, the, the um, gold coast hotels new hospital at the same time i was having um real estate agents taking them around showing them property and at the same time I was getting them in the casino and I was getting a clip off their losses. I set all this up. I was getting a clip off any property sales. I was getting a clip off the plastic surgery. I was getting a clip from the hotel. All I had to do was bring these guys over. And I was like, I was like, this is going to be awesome. Um, it got, I, I'd sort of negotiated all these deals, which was a really interesting experience because I had, no, again, no idea what I was doing. Um, and then I just had cold feet and I just thought, you know what? You don't even speak Mandarin. This is a terrible idea. Don't do it. <laughs> and, I, and luckily, because the pandemic would have killed it like six months later. So um, that wasn't what I did. But I did decide that I really loved the startup scene. Um, I'd been involved in it, obviously, myself. And I was in. I was going to a few events. And I thought, God, no one recruits well for startups. We used to recruit for startups. We did stuff for safety culture in my previous business and a few of the other earlier ones. And we did a terrible job, like a terrible job. So I was like, okay, no one does this well. We need to build a company that just does this for startups, nothing else. So that's what we built. So I went and interviewed heaps of founders and we created a completely different model um, for startups. And that was where Nudge came from. And it was great. It, it, I really enjoyed it. I felt like I was adding real value to people. We'd create a pricing model that was unique, that was working really well for them. We trained consultants up to understand the different kind of people you need at seed, pre-seed, series A, B, C, D, totally different, how to sell ESOPs, all this stuff that recruiters didn't know. And the reason recruitment companies weren't doing a good job was they just didn't understand the startups. That was the reason. Um, they were trying to sell a job at Combank as much as they were trying to sell a job at startup. Yeah. And then through doing that, then the pandemic hit six months later. Awesome. Didn't know what was going to happen. That actually ended up being the best thing for us because, as you know, startups went nuts. Online companies went nuts. Um, Cloud-based businesses went nuts. E-commerce went nuts. These are all startups. So it actually ended up being great. Um, and the biggest problem I was finding was how do you get someone to work for a startup when they've never heard of the company? It's a good question. Like, why would you leave a really good job where you're happy because I'm headhunting you because it was a very tight candidate market at the time and come work for a company you've never heard of that was probably going to fail because it's a startup. It's not an easy sell. So I thought this is where my media stuff came, which led to Balance the Grind. So we thought, let's do a podcast, much like yourself, 
I said, well, I'm gonna, but I'm not going to do any old podcast because everyone was doing podcasts then because it was the pandemic and everyone was stuck at home. So everyone started doing podcasts. And I thought, I'm going to do a TV show. So through some contacts and people I knew and event people, I knew a whole bunch of people that had event businesses that obviously had no business because there were no events. I managed to secure a proper television studio for next to nothing. And if you watch the early episodes of the Give It A Night show, you'll see that we're sitting so far apart because of the pandemic. We weren't allowed social distancing. So we're sitting in this huge studio. We're so far apart from our guests, I'm literally shouting to them. But the whole idea was if I can get the founders on this show, we can talk about their journeys and we'll ask why people want to work for them and all these kinds of things. I can use that content when I'm headhunting people on LinkedIn. And so what we do is, and we still do it today, and it's still the most effective thing we do. We film a half an hour episode. The last question I ask is, why would someone come and work for you? When we approach people, we will send them that last 30 seconds, one minute of why someone would come and work with them. If they like that and they get it because they hear the founder and they think, oh, I'm interested, we then watch the whole episode. If they're still interested, then and only then do we talk to them about the job. So what you're doing is you're getting them to buy into the founder, which is the most important thing. You're then getting them to buy into the mission, and they already know why it was started, where it's at, and where it's going. And then you talk to them about the job. And this has just been the most revolutionary thing we've done in hiring startups. And that was our foray into media. And that's why we did it. We didn't do it to create a podcast. We did it to help us recruit. And I loved doing that. And I discovered I loved doing that. And from there, you know, a few, a few was maybe seven, eight months later, the owner of Balance the Grind, which has actually been around seven months, approached me. I'd been on the site and asked me if I wanted to buy it. It was really just a blog then. There was no ABN, there was no company, but it was just his personal blog. Um, and I said, why would I want to buy that? I'm trying to build a recruitment company. You're crazy. But I happen to need a head of content. Do you want to come and work for me? And then we can maybe talk about that later. And he did. He came and worked for me and we got on really well. And I bought it six weeks later because I suddenly had this realization I could use it in all sorts of different ways that I love media. And that built Balance the Grind, which has now morphed into TNG Media. And we've got newsletters called Startup Life. And so now we have the Nudge Group, but then we also have this whole media business, which I just, I love doing. And we're doing TikToks and we're doing YouTube shows and we're doing all sorts of different things. So those businesses have sort of come, have been born out of accident, as most things have. And then that has led me through the startup scene to the new business that you'll see launched this this year, which is we're building a private club for exited founders where they can meet with family offices and hedge funds and all this kind of stuff. And that was a co-working space. And I won't talk about the name, but it went bust during COVID. I bought it with a friend of mine who owns a venture capital company, and we're going to relaunch that in July. And they're all interconnected. But I think I think the big lesson learned is that the opportunities are coming in front of you all the time. And, and I learned this through thousands of business books and podcasts, right? And I would just let them go because I was always very laser focused. What I do now is I look at them and go, okay, is that just a shiny distraction? Because it looks really cool. Or can I intertwine that into my other businesses so that they can be self-perpetuating each other? And if they can, then I start to entertain them. And so there's another one coming into the, the foray right now that maybe we'll do later this year, probably, because it fits really well. But, you know, in the past, I would have just focused on the one business. Now I'm looking at how I can create multiple revenue streams and they can all support each other. And they all, they're all, you know, they're not completely different. Um, and then the ones that are, because I get plenty of those these days, I just, I find it quite hard because I do like shiny things. Um, but I try and let them go past.
<laughs> and that's probably been my biggest learning in the last few years is is how to how to intertwine businesses together to make them self-fulfilling with each other it's really fascinating uh listening to you speak about these different ventures that you've taken on many questions that i could ask but um uh i don't think we've got the time for it but the um the thought that comes to mind is uh, as you're layering these revenue opportunities um, that you're finding come to you or that you're seeking out, um, are you starting up new businesses each time or have you got to a point and with new teams or have you got to a point now where you've found a model that kind of works uh, where it's more efficient by adding each rather than duplicating what you had before? It's a, it's a mixture. It's a great question. Um, so when we when I look at a new venture, if I decide I'm going ahead with it, one, I always look to have partners. So I will say that when I started Nudge, I wanted to be a self-founder. That probably taught me more than anything because I learned all the things that I'm really, really bad at. And I would suggest everyone does that. And that's because I'd had difficulty with founders in my previous role. And I didn't want that again. Um, but at the same time, the value of a co-founder is massive. So what I look to do now is I look to do these new ventures with another founder, but another founder who's also got another business. So we're both kind of doing it part-time, but again, they're all intertwined. Yeah. So once I've got to that stage, I'll then talk to the people that are working in my current ventures and see who's interested and who's not. And if there's a way we can cross pollinate, and then there's an element of hiring staff that are specific to that because the best part for me about all these new companies is I have no idea what I'm doing in any of them. Like with media, I'm literally clueless. Now I read a lot, but I'm clueless. So I need to get experts in to help me with that. I need people who've done it before. I need people who understand how to build a subscription media business. I never learned that in recruitment, of course. So you get this exciting part of being able to give your team opportunities where they can sort of maybe do some things or move from one to the other. You get new people coming into the group. And then you get other founders who are also coming in and bringing their learnings. So you're suddenly getting this mass injection of what I love, which, which is trying to work out how to do stuff. Um, and it's super cool to do that with people. And I think, again, this is being seasoned. You have a much wider network of people that you trust and that have had their own challenges. And they're just really exciting to work with. You know, I'm a member of Carbo, have been since it started. I think, I think I was member number eight. Um, it's been going eight years now. Huge amounts of founders in there. I'm not as active in there as I used to be because I don't have the time. But from the early days, I've got some very, very close friends that came just from meeting new founders. And that's why I think these clubs will work because I think people do like communities and they like to meet people who think like them as well. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a, it's a mix of all of those things. No, thank you for sharing. And and I guess maybe um and we're getting close to the end of our uh, end of our discussion. So I'll ask you shortly a little bit about sort of maybe the key learnings that you'd uh, from being seasoned, as you said, um, that you can impart <laughs> with our with our community. But um before I do, uh, how's the business landscape changed in Australia, uh, in your view, over the last maybe five to ten years in terms of new businesses coming to market? Uh, have you are there any notable changes around how people start businesses today and stay in business? That's a great question. No one's asked me that before. Luckily, I do. Have I'm glad I've asked you a couple that no one's asked. Like I said, before. I do have an opinion on everything. Whether Good. it's accurate or not is, is another matter. So I think the pandemic's obviously completely changed that. And I think the biggest change I've seen in Australia, which was something that used to frustrate the hell out of me. I love Australia. I don't want to live anywhere else, but there's still things that frustrate me like anything in life. 
And it was the way that Australians used to be quite small in their thinking. They would focus on Australia, maybe Asia. What the pandemic's done is it's made everybody think globally because everyone's understood the power of being remote. We probably wouldn't have done this pre-pandemic, right? Um, and I think people are starting now, and maybe it's also the VCs are pushing they want companies that can be global, but people are starting now believing they can be global, whereas they didn't think like that before. So I think the belief of being able to build a global business has happened. I think everybody understands the power of their own personal brand. That's definitely changed. There's a lot of bad with that, but there's also a lot of good with that. It's just one of those things. It's an evolving thing, but I do think it was something that if you see the people, if you go back 20 years and you look at the people who built personal brands, their businesses usually were much more successful than those who didn't. Yep. So I do think there's, there's some, some value in that. Um, and I think everybody has a side hustle now. Now, I don't know whether that's good or bad, but it's definitely changed a lot. Whether that's a generational thing or whether that's a Australian thing, I'm not so sure. I think it's probably generational. Do you think it's um, it's driven by it's just easier to do business or is there something maybe more of a forced entrepreneurship by way of needing to keep up with life expenses? And- Entrepreneurship's become cool. Um, never used to be. So, you know, if you think back to Bill Gates, wasn't cool then. <laughs> it's become cool. But I think it's um, I think it's the barriers to entry are so much lower. Like if you look at the tools and the things that you can do now around technology, it, it's just so much easier to do. You know, there used to be significant barriers around cost. You'd have to get an office, you'd have to buy servers, you know, just for that basic level, let alone to being able to design your own things through Canvas, you know, Canvas change. There are so many products that are, that we take for granted now that just make doing things that were hard and expensive super easy. I think it's great because it gives people the opportunity to do that. I think it's a real positive that people are having a crack and I think some of them will give up and won't do it and some of them will go on and keep it as a hobby and some will come on and be successful. But I just think... Anything that gives people an opportunity to do what's in their their heart, if you like, and I know that sounds a little. We we like to say we want to make it easy to do business, so you can do more of what you love. So yeah, yeah, I, think, I think that's that's Thank exactly you. what they're doing. Yeah, yeah, that's good. I think it's good. Awesome. Well, Steve, you've been on the journey. It seems from from little things uh, to to where you are today. Uh, what are three personal learnings that you could share with us? Uh, to help us either get started or or succeed in the long running business, I think the number one personal learning is taking responsibility for everything. So I think as a leader, everyone says you're responsible for everything, and that's great. As a young leader, you say you are until it goes wrong, and then it's someone else's fault. The sooner you can stop doing that, the better you'll become, and the more you'll learn. Right? And I think the more accountable you are the better a founder you'll become. I think that's the number one thing I've learned. Um, The other learnings are, and this is bizarre, right? I always hired on gut feel. Now, that is completely counterintuitive as a recruiter, and it's not the right way to do it. There's an element of gut feel, and you have to have that, but you need to be more data-driven in the way that you hire people. Don't just hire friends. I've done a lot of that. Don't just give people opportunities because they seem like they could be great. You've actually really got to do it. If you want something to succeed in this data-driven world that we are in, and we are in a data-driven world more than ever before, you need to put data-driven decision into your hiring. So that's something that I think most people still don't do. 
Um, third learning, I think the third learning is probably the sooner you can let go, the better. Building trust in your staff is a really difficult thing to do for most founders because as we touched on at the beginning, founders are control freaks in their nature, which is why they become founders because they want to take control of the situation. But the more you hang on to that, the worse your company will perform as it grows. So the sooner you understand that and become comfortable, and it's it's a, it's a learning thing for a lot of founders, you have to learn to become comfortable, to let other people do those things that you can do better than them and to let them stuff it up and understand that and build that into your finance model so that they can become better, the much you'll have a much stronger business. So those are probably the, And none of those are fun. They're all awful things you have to learn. <laughs> but uh, a lot of the times the greatest learnings are not fun to uh to learn I I find that, I... <laughs> yeah, it's it's all it, it's one of those things it's like why is all the healthy food not taste quite as good as the really unhealthy food don't get me wrong some healthy food tastes great and if you only eat it it tastes amazing but once you have some of the unhealthy stuff it doesn't taste as great it tastes that tastes better <laughs> completely agree with you Steve, it's been a real pleasure having you today. Um, really enjoyed learning about your journey and so much so much to learn from you. So thank you so much for sharing. Hey, thanks for having me on. It's been great. Thank you. And um, if anyone wants to find you or the Nudge Group or Balance the Run, where can they find you? LinkedIn is always the easiest. Everything Everything's on LinkedIn. Um, and I think I, my, I think all my emails and everything are public. But, um, yeah, it's either steve at the nudgegroup.com or steve at balancethegrind.co. Those, those are the easiest ways. Thanks so much, Steve. It's been a pleasure. Have a great day. From Little Things is brought to you by Papera, the all-in-one solution that makes business easy for Aussie sole traders, company directors, and small business owners. You can learn more and get started for free at papera.com. From Little Things is part of the Sonic Boom network of podcasts. To get your brand started on its own podcast, visit sonicboom.vc.